future trends, deep insights, industry leaders. This is the iGaming Next podcast with your host, Pierre Lindt. Hello, iGaming Intelligentsia. Before we start today's podcast, here is a message from our sponsors. The iGaming Next podcast is made possible with the support from our sponsors at Pragmatic Solutions, leaders in intelligent platform technology. I've been working with Ashley, Lewis and the guys over at Pragmatic Solutions over the last year. And as the early supporter of this podcast, I cannot recommend them enough. The Pragmatic Solutions Player Account Management Platform is an incredibly powerful technology stack for today's gaming business. Their modern modular platform provides all the core services to power your business and their SaaS licensing model allows you to reduce cost and accelerate your strategic goals. Enterprise technology with decades of operational know-how at scale built in. Upgrade your business to the Pragmatic Solutions PAM platform. Visit www.pragmatic.solutions to arrange a platform demo. This podcast is brought to you by Alia Play, a new generation game aggregator which provides over 5,000 games with only one integration. Partnering with 80 game providers, Alia is offering top iGaming content while positioning itself as a tech leader with Amazon Web Services and Java-based platform. Alia's goal is to create an innovative and fun experience for the players. To find out more, visit alia.com. This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Play, an industry-leading content provider of slots, live casino, bingo, and virtual sports. Pragmatic Play excels at creating an immersive, engaging, and mobile-focused experience for players with over 200 HTML5 games that are available in all currencies, 31 languages, and all major certified markets. Discover more at pragmaticplay.com. And good afternoon, good afternoon, uh, Chris, and welcome to the iGaming podcast. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure, actually. And, uh, you know, it's the first time we meet uh, here, of course, Chris, but uh, I've been an avid follower of yourself. Um, you're, you've been obviously active in the sports booking and uh, iGaming world is particularly in the in the US uh, and quite public facing uh, Uh, here on on Twitter and and LinkedIn and so so on and you're obviously the the co-founder of uh, American Affiliate um, and an investor invested in many different products uh, and so on but uh, can can you start off today a little bit more perhaps an introduction and your background in general Chris Sure so I started in the online gambling industry around 20 years ago I've had basically a dual track career uh, one part of my career has been very focused on customer acquisition So I've built and sold a number of affiliate marketing networks and continue to do work on that front today, as you mentioned, with American Affiliate. As a result of some of those exits, I'm also fortunate enough to be in a position where I can do early stage investing and, and do have positions in a number of earlier stage companies with some sort of tether to the U.S. sports betting or online gambling opportunity. Then the other track of my career is on the research and consulting side. I founded the sports betting practice at a research firm called Eilers and Craycheck Gaming. And again, there, the majority of our focus is on legislative forecasting, market forecasting, and, and product analysis. Again, very heavily centered in the, the US market and the US opportunity. Brilliant, Chris, thanks for that. And you, you mentioned you started a career 20 years ago. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you started out on the poker side of things. Uh, 
as well. Very similar as myself, actually, during the WPT days and so on. Uh, so you were a poker player yourself or? Yep, I played professionally for a couple of years. And, and then as I'm fond of saying, the games got harder and I got dumber. So I was yeah. fortunate <laughs> enough to to be around when the games were, were easy and, and you could do things like Limpery Raise Aces all day long. And then of course, <laughs> very quickly, the, the games became uh, exploited even at you know mid to, to low limits. And it was probably around 2006 where playing full time or, or even the majority of my time just became something that you know, honestly was, was no longer really all that tenable. Yeah, no, it was different times back then. It was a bit more Wild West in the back in the ultimate uh, bet on Paradise Poker days yep. with all the scandals and so on. Uh, but uh, I guess that's a, uh, that's a discussion for another time. Uh, today, uh, I'd love to uh, uh, pick your brain a little bit on what's, uh, what is the latest and greatest in the uh, uh, American market, obviously, in the sports betting and, and the iGaming side of things. And... Um, I guess to start off with here, um, in the time of this recording, obviously yesterday they were announced the first uh, 10 licenses in uh, the state of uh, New York. Uh, obviously quite controversial in general. They, uh, uh, it's a very high tax rate in, in, in the state that's been announced and uh, uh, some of the, let's say, major tier one operators are not included in the list of these uh, 10. Um, Pen Gaming, of course, and... and uh, uh, and also Bet365 and so on. Uh, but I'd, I'd love to hear just your analysis of um, of uh, the, uh, the first licenses and, and uh, this one that's, uh, that's being published in New York. And what do you think about the state uh, decision in general to uh, create this tax hike, so to say? And do you think there's a, there's a, there's a risk of this um, happening in more states uh, that uh, we'll see this higher tax rates? It's interesting. I think we've been wondering for a while how some of the larger states who, who recognize the amount of leverage that they ultimately have over operators, how they were going to wield that leverage. It is worth noting that Pennsylvania obviously went forward with pretty high license fees and a pretty high tax rate a couple of years ago for both sports betting and online gambling. And we haven't necessarily seen that set a precedent for the states that followed. So certainly New York setting that kind of tax rate isn't the, the greatest indication if you're wondering how states like Texas and California might approach. But I think it's important to keep in mind that Pennsylvania is a great counterpoint to the, the idea that all states are necessarily going to just follow what New York has done from here. I think the other thing to keep in mind is we'll almost immediately start hearing conversations about revising that approach in New York. And, and I suspect that where you'll see those conversations really focus is on refining the concept of taxable revenue and what should be included in taxable revenue. It would not surprise me if a year from now we're hearing conversations like, see how much money is still flowing across the border to New Jersey. See how much money we estimate is still flowing to offshore operators. We get that you're not going to lower the tax rate or give us a rebate how about you allow us to deduct certain promotional credits or certain bonuses or other kinds of spend from the definition of, of taxable revenue? Right, right, right. That, that makes sense. So, so the last word is not uh, said basically to, to the future of this regulation uh, here. I heard, I don't know if this is true, but uh, I heard that um, if you cross the, uh, what was it called in, in, uh, in, in New York, the, uh, the Washington Bridge or something like this, mm -hmm. you, you enter a different state and there's a small part of, I, I'm gonna butcher this now. It's probably it's not Delaware. No, that's next to New York. New Jersey. Yep. 
is New Jersey and um, there's a small part of, uh, of New Jersey which is uh, generating more revenue than the entire state of Nevada just because uh, the, the New Yorkans are, are traveling across the bridge essentially to, uh, to gamble. <laughs> that might be overstating it just a little bit, but I, I think the, the numbers I've seen suggest that you're, you're probably looking at something like 100 to $200 million of, of outflow annually. And that number has the opportunity to increase as more and more neighboring states uh, that, that surround New York do authorize and launch sports betting. But New Jersey will remain, as you noted, the easiest for many New Yorkers to access and, and the most attractive place for that, that uh, demand to flow out of New York and into another jurisdiction. Right, right, right. And so... On that note now, obviously these uh, operators will go live. I think uh, the regulator mentioned that uh, this, the state will go live before the, the big Super Bowl in the, in the US, obviously. And um, what, do you, what do you think as operators? Do you think that they'll be able to uh, state uh, from the get-go? Or um, with the 51% tax rate, obviously, it's, uh, how, will, how will the operators uh, deal with that tax rate? Do you think they'll kind of lower the odds, lower promotional offers and so on, or, or how will they tackle uh, this seemingly high tax rate? I suspect they'll ignore it, at least for the first couple of years. I, I don't know that you're really in, in the macro seeing a lot of operators worry about bottom line today. And I, I think that they'll look at the tax rate as just another expense, just another loss that they have to deal with in order to secure as much market shares as possible. We were talking about a smaller state, uh, less of a marquee market than New York, then, then I think maybe operators would take a different posture. But I'd be surprised if the vast majority of, of operators aren't really getting in there and, and slugging it out in New York and, and basically treating the, the tax rate again as just another expense, just another loss that they're going to have to absorb, at least for the short term. Now, when we start asking that question again, two years out, three years out, once share is calcified a little bit, once winners and losers are a little more clearly established, then I think you might start to see operators diverge in their approaches. And obviously, some operators are just built from the ground up to spend more and lose more than, than other operators. So you will see some variety of approach, I think. I, I wouldn't expect, for example, uh, a win bet to be throwing out the, the same sort of marketing dollars that a, a DraftKings is throwing yeah. out. But broadly speaking, I, I think the tax rate is not necessarily going to act as a, a significant dampener for marketing and promotional spend, at least in those first couple of years when market share is still basically up for grabs. Right. And speaking about ignoring your bottom line, um, DraftKings Draft uh, uh, just released a quarterly report, of course, and uh, while they are increasing their top line, they are also obviously uh, massively increasing uh, the losses that they are generating. And I hear the word on the street from investors are now that uh, the likes of DraftKings, like how, at what point uh, will they start closing in uh, on these uh, massive losses that are they are incurring quarter to quarter that are seemingly growing and growing? And, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well, uh, Chris. Um, is there a risk that the American online market uh, is, uh, is a bubble uh, forming here, particularly now at DraftKings are obviously investing really, really hard in, into their marketing. Is there a risk here that this can, that this can backfire on the entire market? 
I think you're seeing a little bit of a, an attitudinal overcorrection in the last couple of months. So I, I think that when these first began, so DraftKings is a stock and then a, a number of publicly traded names that followed, uh, many of which were not necessarily pure plays for the U.S. market in the same way that, that DraftKings is effectively a pure play for the U.S. market. I think what you saw were a lot of both retail and institutional investors who fundamentally misunderstood what this opportunity was and, and perhaps bestowed overly generous valuations on these companies. I think you're now seeing a, a snapback that is in and of itself almost as disproportionate as that, that over-enthusiasm that characterized the, the first few quarters. So I don't think we're really at the risk of, of a bubble here. A, a couple of things are worth noting. One, when we look at the oldest markets that we have in the US, New Jersey is the best example here. And you look at the kinds of player values that you're seeing out of New Jersey for online casino, the kinds of player values you're seeing out of New Jersey for sports betting, it is setting the stage for a confirmation of, of what many people asserted, but, but we're not able to prove, which is that the U.S. will end up being among the most, if not the most productive markets in the world on a per capita basis. When you start talking about just how much Americans are, are willing to gamble online, both on the casino side and the sports side. So when you look at some of these early states like New Jersey and like Pennsylvania, you are seeing increasingly compelling indications that these are not just going to be markets that maybe mirror the UK, but markets that outperform the UK and other established, you know, higher GDP European markets. So I think that's one thing to consider that we're seeing the demand for the product on the consumer side is there and that the demand is not just there in that you have high penetration rates, but the demand is also there in that you have relatively deep wallets that consumers are willing to open and keep open for these activities. And that that spend is apparently largely incremental from retail spend. It's not simply just borrowing money out of the retail gambling spend and moving it over to another category. So the demand appears to be there, and then the demand also appears to be robust. I think the other piece to keep in mind is that we do have a relatively predictable trajectory of authorization for at least sports betting across the rest of the U.S. There are definitely some questions about how and when California will authorize, right? And there are some states in the U.S. that will likely never authorize, although that's a, a pretty small number. But you can, with I think a relatively high degree of certainty, look out four or five years in the U.S. and say sports betting is likely to continue to expand in terms of the percentage of the population in the U.S. that has access to online sports betting. I don't think there's there's that much speculation really involved in, in that kind of claim. So robust demand, right? And then a depth to that demand, and then an increasing TAM, a predictably increasing TAM, at least on the sports betting side. Things are a little trickier with online casino. I think that will continue to lag behind sports betting when it comes to authorization, but still the, the upside there is tremendous because of the relatively small number of states that have authorized. So while that TAM expansion may not be quite as predictable as the sports betting TAM expansion, it's still definitely there as, as a legitimate opportunity for TAM expansion. Definitely more of a timing question around there. You don't have the, the same level of certainty. So you start to wrap all of that together. And what you have is, again, a large robust market with a relative amount of predictability regarding the continued expansion of that market. and then 
this next part is is where I think people really start to split on is the DraftKings approach correct? Is it incorrect? Is it sustainable? Is it not sustainable? To me, a lot of that conversation comes down to how successful you think DraftKings or, or any brand really contesting these markets is going to be at expanding the product set beyond traditional sports betting, fantasy sports, and casino. How much potential do they have to start to move into other forms of consumer activity that are gambling-like, that speak to the same consumer motivations and interests, and in many cases, the same demographic, but are, are not classified as gambling. So fractionalized collectibles trading is, is a great example of the kind of adjacency that I'm talking about, or NFT-mediated games like Zen. If you're a believer in that story, then DraftKings approach makes all the sense in the world because they're building for a TAM that is two, three, maybe even four X what the sports betting online casino TAM is. If you think their opportunity is wholly limited to sportsbook and casino and you're bearish on casino and, and maybe based to bearish on the ability of some of the larger states to get sports betting done, then you do have ample room for legitimate criticism of, of their approach. So Bit, bit of a monologue there, right? But to me, it really does come down to that pivot point of how do you define the opportunity? What is the TAM and is it just uppercase G gambling products like traditional sports betting casino? Or is there something larger in play here that a brand or a series of brands under a single company could, could really attack, again, within the frame of, of a TAM that may be two to four X larger, the kinds of numbers that typically get hung on, on the online sports betting and online casino TAM. Right, it's really interesting uh, analysis. A, a lot to unpack here, here of course. But uh, so what you're saying is essentially that um, an organization like DraftKings, we shouldn't necessarily only look at the opportunities that they uh, are focusing on today, and uh, where it might be these kind of let's. I don't know if you want to call them side products, but um, obviously they announced the uh, the launch of the NFT marketplace there, for example, uh, uh, about six months ago, and and potentially. By leveraging their strong brand in the U.S. and uh, and and their their database, they could potentially um, be successful in those verticals. Uh, in addition to the gaming industries, we should we shouldn't we shouldn't ba basically look at only uh, what they are currently deriving revenue from. Uh, whereas in the future there might be other um, other verticals too, essentially. Yep. I mean, the simple way to put it is spending at the current levels is is challenging if you think that your customer LTV is wholly defined by their participation in sports betting and maybe online casino, depending on when a given state catches up and, and authorizes online casino. There, reasonable, reasonable people really can disagree about whether or not the, the current level of acquisition spend is, is viable, is, is sustainable. But if you can bump that customer LTV up by 25, 50, 100%, by introducing adjacent resonant products, then the current levels of acquisition spend seem not just sustainable, but but in many cases, I don't know that I'd use the word a bargain, but but they definitely start to seem a, a lot more defensible, a lot more of a, a smart investment as opposed to uh, borderline reckless spending levels. Yeah, yeah, right. Interesting. If you if you were to put a prediction, though, Chris, uh, I mean, to put on the predictor hat and say, when which quarter will uh, DraftKings uh, published their first positive EBITDA results. What would you guess? 
look, I, I would suspect that some of that is going to be a function of the company coming under pressure or not coming under pressure, right? And, and how much room they are given by investors or not given by investors, because as long as they continue to be given room by investors, then there, there's not necessarily a motivation to, to pull the PML in, into that kind of shape today. But I, I do think that the company does have a path to profitability within the next three years, even if we are talking about that path to profitability, relying on uh, a greater online casino map to play within and the introduction again of some adjacent products that allow them to get uh, higher LTVs out of their existing customer base. And possibly remember also when you do introduce those adjacent businesses, you're not just providing a way for your existing customer base to expand the wallet that they spend with you. You are also, at least in theory, opening up new customer acquisition avenues then they may not bring with them the sort of eye-watering acquisition prices that we see for online casino and online sports bank customers. Right, right. So, you know, as a, as a Swedish person myself, obviously I'm raised here with a, a Spotify account from the very first year that they launched. And, and as probably both of us know, uh, it, was only, it was only last year, I believe, that they posted their first uh, positive EBITDA quarter after like, you know, 12, 13 years. And it just proves that what the investors care about in, in general is, is uh, to grow the top line, right? And, and, uh, um, and, and, to, and to grow the organization. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, so it'd be interesting to follow uh, DraftKings in, in that regard as well. And uh, yeah, let's follow up in three years and see, and see uh, how, how close they are, essentially. You got um, it. Good. Uh, on another note, I want to jump over to another company talking about Sweden that is uh, close to my heart as well as an investor myself, um, which is uh, Evolution. Um, Evolution CEO, Martin Carlesund, said in an interview recently that he believes that the U.S. market could, be could become 10 times bigger than the European market currently uh, is. And to put that into perspective, right now, Evolution derives around 10% of their total revenue from the U.S. market and um, something along the lines of 70% from, uh, from uh, Euro European market. Uh, so to put that in perspective, of course, uh, you know, Martin Collison and the CEO and Evolution sees the U.S. as the, as the future. Uh, do you think that this statement uh, uh, is, uh, is correct or, that he, uh, or do you think he is exaggerating? And also, is there a risk that because they are at the mercy of the regulators, as you mentioned here before, Chris, uh, on the iGaming side of things, online casino, the path to legislation is not as straightforward as, uh, as on the sports betting side for many states. Do you think that there is a risk that um, this can take a lot longer time uh, for evolution to enter more states than what maybe the general investor is uh, aware of right now? Online casino is, is interesting. You can look at it from a few different perspectives. I think the simplest is to look at the steady march of sports betting across the US. So I think 30 plus states at, at this point and say to yourself, well, if, if online sports betting could do it, why couldn't online casino? The, the reality is that probably is too blunt of, of a way of thinking in some ways, although interestingly, it, it may actually become more correct as, as time goes on. So let me back up and, and try to un unpack both of those concepts. So why yeah. isn't it right to think of online casino as basically analogous to online sports betting? If the state does online sports betting, they'll inevitably do online casino. A couple of things separate the two. I, I think the first is that Americans do think of sports betting as, as not gambling, effectively. It, it is put in a different box culturally 
And I think it has also been put in a different box politically than other forms of gambling. And that does help to explain why sports betting has been able to expand so rapidly uh, across the U.S. at a pace that we typically do not see when you think about legislated gambling expansion in the U.S. Usually takes a decade plus for forms of gambling to spread that far across the U.S. And of course, sports betting has managed that in the space of, of just a couple of years. I think the other important thing to realize is that gambling stakeholders, so casinos, racetracks, card clubs, tribal casinos, do think of sports betting differently than they think of, of online casinos. Sports betting is, for most gambling stakeholders, a new product, right? If you've been operating outside of Vegas, sports betting just wasn't really on your radar. And even if you were operating in Vegas, sports betting was effectively uh, an amenity. It's de minimis in terms of its contribution to your bottom line. So it, it's not as tough to get stakeholders to reach consensus around sports betting because it does feel like a new source of revenue, it does feel like a new product. When you start talking about online casino with those same stakeholders, gain consensus becomes a lot more difficult because now you're talking about a product that the perception, at least anyway, is threatens the business that they already operate. And they don't think of sports betting in quite the same way. So that's the argument for why that approach of, well, sports betting did it, and so online casino will just naturally follow is, is probably a little too blunt and probably a little too simplistic. The two products are fundamentally different in terms of the dynamics that surround each product when you're talking about passing a piece of legislation that authorizes sports betting versus a piece of legislation that authorizes online casino. But something is changing in, in the US, and I do think there's an argument to be made that that view, even though it's a little simplistic and, and maybe a little too blunt, it, it does capture a new and emerging reality, which is that as sports betting is expanding rapidly across the US, it is also creating an environment where the universe of stakeholders that are incentivized to advocate for online casino is expanding and where the incentives and motivations that those stakeholders have to advocate for online casino are increasing. So take a, a, a simple example. I won't call out any particular casino company, but let's just imagine Casino X, right? The typical US retail casino company. Three or four years ago, online gambling was an afterthought for Casino X. Maybe they viewed it suspiciously. Maybe they were neutral. Maybe they had operations in New Jersey that were throwing off a couple of million dollars a year. And they, they were lean positive, but they certainly weren't willing to expend any political capital on the issue. So you fast forward three or four years later, and now there's a, a reasonable chance that Casino X either owes a fair amount of its public company valuation to the digital opportunity, or in fact, has actually spun off the digital opportunity into a standalone unit. So now that stakeholder has a fundamentally different attitude toward and view of online casino. Because as long as they're deriving significant chunks of their public company valuation from the digital opportunity, they're going to need to find more ways to generate digital growth, both in terms of user growth and top line growth. And there's only so much of that to go around with sports betting. So in an interesting way, I think sports betting will 
ultimately pull online casino behind it. The question of how long that'll take is, is obviously an open one, but we definitely are starting to see a sea change where casino stakeholders who might've been opposed to neutral on online gambling, or even if they were in support of it, were somewhat lukewarm or tepid in their support are now deeply incentivized to find new paths for growth for their digital businesses. And, and ultimately there are only so many of those paths available. Online casino is the most obvious one where they can exercise the greatest amount of advantages over new competitors. And I, I think it's also the one that, that has the most known and, and most lucrative upside when you start thinking about the, the breadth of consumers that it appeals to. And again, look at New Jersey, they're likely going to crest over a billion dollars this year in, in online casino and poker revenue, there's a clear demand for for these products. Yeah, interesting. So, so, so in other words, we, you know, it, the, the path to legalization for the uh, online casinos is not as straightforward as uh, as sports betting for mainly for cultural reasons. And let's say, uh, but uh, as you're saying, obviously there's a strong political lobby uh, in uh, that that are pushing obviously for this legislation to take place sooner or later. Uh, uh, then of course, and it, it, it's quite interesting this movement in general from the uh, land-based casinos being very opposed to um, to 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 online being leg uh, legalized. Um, obviously, it was uh, driven by um, I, I I lose his name now. The, the owner of uh, Sands uh, who passed away uh, tragically. You're La you're Las Vegas based. So you, you, yep, you Sheldon Adelson. Yep. Shannon Anderson, exactly, um, who was, I guess, both the most loved and hated person at the same time, uh, particularly in the in the poker world. Uh, then, but um, but yeah, to now uh, that um, uh, that the the land-based uh, lobby is completely behind, obviously uh, driving this legislation forward. So um, yeah, interesting on on that side to to see as well. Uh, on on that note as well, or I guess a, a similar topic uh, that is relevant uh, as well is. Um, I'm really curious as well to hear your thoughts, Chris, on the tier two operators that are operating in uh, the U.S. Uh, particularly, I am interested in Kindred, for example, um, you know, another Scandinavian-facing operator, and there are many others. You know, my good friend uh, Daniel Gratzner is running Carousel Group in the mm -hmm. in the U.S., uh, partnering with Maxim Button, and and there are other tier, tier two operators that are trying to establish themselves behind these. Uh, Giants in the uh, in the uh, in the U.S. market. Um, taking Kinder, that's an example. Um, their uh, SOP of North America uh, mentioned last year in a podcast uh, that uh, their targets, Kinder's targets for establishing themselves uh, in the in the U.S. would be uh, high single dig digit uh, market capitalization um, in the states that they enter. Now, a year later, uh, they uh, published in the last quarterly report that they have actually decreased the uh, uh, revenue from North America. And it seems that rather than high single digit um, market cap, they, they instead are floating around 1% or something along those lines in the states that they operate. And that really has to beg the question, um, is it even possible? Is, there even a, is, it even, is it even worthwhile as a tier two or three operator to consider entering uh, the U.S. market, even on a single-state basis, uh, or is the market used for the big players? There are a lot of reasons to run an online sports book in the U.S., right? And the, it, it can't be that the only good reason is because 
you think that you can compete for a podium position in terms of, of national market share. So I, I think there are any number of legitimate reasons to operate a sports book in a given state or a series of states at a low to mid single digit market share. You may be biding your time and developing your operational capabilities in order to benefit from products where share is likely to be a little more evenly distributed, like online casino, where I think you're unlikely to see that kind of pooling of share that you're seeing with sports betting just by the nature of how online casino is, is marketed and the audience that it's marketed to. You may also be positioning yourself as an acquisition target or as a complementary brand to a larger umbrella brand as this does evolve into a national marketplace. I think we will see the big players start to increasingly adopt multi-brand strategies as this does become more of a national market. And there starts to become this question of, okay, we have our primary brand, but our primary brand may not have the elasticity it needs to attract this demographic, or it may not have the elasticity it needs to support this new product set. So I do think you are going to start to see some of those larger brands adopt a multi-brand strategy and, and therefore M&A becomes uh, B2C, M&A becomes more of, of a viable thing than we've seen it be so far. Obviously, DraftKings acquisition of Gold Nugget is, is one example, although I think they made that acquisition for, for a number of other reasons. And then I guess the final note I'd, I'd make is that the US opportunity is, is still very new the ultimate shape of it, while we have a sense of the upward trajectory in terms of TAM and revenue and access across the, the country all increasing, what consumers are, are going to want, how much they're going to be worth, how they're going to move their play across multiple brands, if they do, what marketing is going to be uh, persistent and effective long-term. These are all open questions. I don't know that anyone who is, is at least doing this seriously, I, I don't know that anyone can be making too big of a mistake by sharpening their operational chops and their market access footprint in the US at, at this point. That strikes me as a, a tough condition to be a, a clearly bad decision with so much unsettled in the US with online casino still emerging and with it, the opportunity to be bailed out by M&A and the plausible opportunity to be bailed out by M&A, not necessarily just by a DraftKings or a FanDuel looking to pursue a multi-brand strategy, but possibly by a non-endemic entrant that's looking to jump into the market later than some of those early movie competitors. Fanatics, I think, being a good example of, of that kind of challenger brand that could, uh, obviously, Fanatics is, is already... Uh, active in the market, but we could certainly see other challenger brands that come from outside of gambling yeah. look to enter the opportunity once it is a, a bit more steady state. And in those situations, M&A may not be just the most attractive option for entry, maybe the only option for entry, depending on, on how market access policies and, and supply and demand there eventually play out. Exactly. Some states obviously have a limited amount of of mm -hmm. uh, licenses and yeah you don't have an option if you and, and you know talking about kindred uh, here chris i um, i was thinking about this as well and and um, my own theory is that uh, uh, kindred's uh, launch into the us is uh, for a potential exit strategy uh, here along the way uh, and 
you know, I made a I made a bet with uh, with a friend of mine that if Kinder doesn't get acquired by the end of the year, I have to eat my sock. Uh, and uh, you know, time is running out here. Uh, so, uh, what do you think? Do I have a reasonable chance here to get away with this bet in the next month and a half? I hope you have maybe some kind of sock that is is a, a vegan product and, and therefore is inherently digestible. I, I think for the end of the year is is a little tough. But again, I don't think that that should be read as as undermining the the value that a company can be accruing by creating an operational framework, market access, and and being live and having at least some uh, consumer based relationships with regulators. All these things are, are in some ways easy to say and very hard to do. And it will quickly become apparent, especially to challenger brands who come from outside of the gambling industry, that they do not want to build these things from scratch, even if it's possible for them to do so. It may not even be possible, but if it is, I, I think they're going to realize in a hurry the value that's baked into, yeah, not just Kindred necessarily, but a company like Kindred that has that institutional knowledge, that has market access, and that has already done the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's to not just go live, but but stay live in a variety of, of regulated state markets. All right, brilliant. So I'm, I'm still hopeful here on my end, but let's see. Uh, you, you mentioned the challenge and brands uh, here that might enter the, the market at a later stage when it matures and so on. And it's something that really interests me in general is um, a trend that I think is emerging more and more is the entry of the major media uh, brands, media houses that are entering the mix. Uh, obviously, we saw Endeavor making acquisitions in this space uh, recently, massive media house owner of the UFC brand, for example. And um, even Disney made uh, um, uh, released a PR here the other week uh, that uh, they have plans to uh, enter the sports betting uh, side of things uh, as well. Um, my speculation that would that could potentially be through the ESPN Plus brand, kind of flipping the switch and integrating sports betting into, uh, into a streaming service. I think that's absolutely the future. Um, but I, I'd like to raise this question with, um, with you a little bit of these uh, mainstream brands that are, uh, especially media houses, that are now entering the mix or potentially entering the mix as we uh, move forward. Uh, you know, being on the European side for many, many years in this industry, um, the... Um, Agami industry has always flown under the radar uh, to some extent. Uh, it's never really been legitimized to that extent where we've seen mainstream household brands uh, touching the industry and so on. So from, from our end, from the European side, we are not really used to uh, seeing that type of movement. And so I'd like to ask you a little bit, Chris, like, what do you think this means for the industry uh, as we move into the future, this kind of challenger brands, as you're saying, uh, Disney and Endeavor entering the mix and potentially other major media houses. Do you think uh, that this can potentially disrupt the uh, um, uh, the, the legacy uh, gaming brands? Do we see, is there a paradigm shift happening where, um, you know, we, we, we are seeing different types of services being offered uh, to, to customers? And what's your thoughts here in general? I think you're absolutely going to see disruption. It, it goes back to something we were talking about a little earlier in the conversation, which is do the vast majority of Americans consider sports betting to be gambling? And the answer is somewhere between no to no. And in that space <laughs> creates a really interesting opportunity for brands that would not normally associate themselves with what I call capital G gambling, 
to feel comfortable associating themselves with sports betting. And maybe it stops there, or maybe that ends up being an entry point. And look, from an economic incentive perspective, it, it inevitably will, at least for some of those brands, be an entry point into other forms of gambling. Think about what we were talking about earlier using DraftKings as an example, although this opportunity is definitely not limited to DraftKings. Gambling brands looking at adjacent products that are complementary, whether that's fractionalized collectibles, NFT mediated games, or things that look a lot more like trading of traditional financial instruments. The flip side of that is that anyone who is a strong brand in one of those product sets, one of those categories, is also probably going to take a pretty close look at sports betting. So it's not hard to draft up a pretty robust list of challenger brands that today have absolutely nothing to do with gambling that might use sports betting as an entry point. The question of how disruptive that ends up being, I think, really comes down to a few things. One, are these brands that enter on their own or do they seek to enter in partnership with a regulated gambling entity because they don't want to handle that side of the business? This is what Fox, I think, was originally envisioning with PokerStars before PokerStars acquisition by, by Patty ultimately created a, a far more awkward and, and arguably untenable situation there. If you have that kind of partnership, then I think the disruptive impact is relatively limited because a significant amount of revenue is still being captured by the legacy brands. And the bit that they're giving up to the challenger brands is likely offset to some degree by the fact that those challenger brands are almost certainly expanding the market, right? By presenting gambling opportunities to consumers in a new context, uh, and, and some subset of those consumers at least probably would not have considered betting if it was not presented to them by Robinhood or by ESPN or by Fanatics. If, however, these challenger brands are charting their own course into regulated gambling and state policy begins to bend in a direction that supports them having entry points that, that are more amenable to these companies who, again, may not want to go the, through the sort of strict licensure that historically is applied to, to gambling companies, then I think the question gets a, a lot more complicated. So the simpler way to say that is these brands are coming, they'll expand the market in the aggregate, but they will also definitely take share from endemic brands. The question of how disruptive that ends up being to those endemic brands really comes down to the question of who is ultimately the gatekeeper that access to regulated gambling has to flow through. Does that continue to be the license holders of today? Or do we see a paradigm shift that allows for uh, far more uh, broad and, and more diverse array of, of stakeholders who are, are pursuing licenses to operate these products? Right, yeah, that, that will be the, uh, the million dollar question here. So, so th there might be a challenge of brands, as you're saying, which we, uh, we are not even considering. Uh, again, you mm -hmm. mentioned Robinhood uh, here, uh, which um, you could make the argument is already a form of gambling. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, and, and, um, and obviously, like crypto trading and so on and so forth, uh, which is also very tied to gambling, let's say. So you would have a demographic there who would be quite inclined to, you know, uh, flip the switch and also try some sports betting or potentially uh, online casino and the, the cross-sell opportunities uh, could be uh, a really interesting um, uh, proposal here and, and uh, as well as these uh, streaming platforms for example like ESPN Plus 
where you have basically a massive demographic which aren't necessarily looking to place a sports book they might come for the content uh, but uh, offer the chance to place a simple sports but they might click yes uh, in in this platform yeah I always go back to not not to call out poker stars, but a, what I think about a lot of the time when I think about how sports betting can morph into something that is still a sports bet in terms of the underlying mechanics and economics, but does not leave the user with the impression that they have actually placed the sports bet. I think about spinning goes right, which effectively allowed poker players who wanted to play a slot machine the the illusion the pretext that they were still playing poker right and there's it, i'm oversimplifying that to a degree but i think it's an example of what we're going to see happen in terms of the morphing of what the sports betting form factor is right now i, I think we have a pretty limited form factor we, we've got a pretty narrow product with what i think we'll soon call traditional sports betting and you know, that's the, the plus three, minus three, plus 110, minus 110, and then fantasy sports. I, I think we are going to see a lot of suppliers and a lot of both endemic brands, but especially challenger brands start to reshape that form factor. So that if, for example, uh, a Robinhood started offering sports bets, I don't think they're going to offer them as a tab in the app that brings up something that looks like the, the DraftKings sports book, they're going to find a way to productize that underlying activity of risking money on your prediction of a future contingent event that, that results from a sporting contest. They're going to find a way to create a product for that that feels natural and seamless to the activity that's already occurring on the platform. How Robinhood does that, I think, is you and I could, could probably whiteboard that today and say, okay, yeah, that, that's how that looks. I get it. That feels more like trading, not like betting. And the distance between trading and betting, is, as you said, is, is arguably non-existent uh, today. It gets a little more interesting and, and certainly more esoteric when you start to think about how do you abstract the product to a degree that allows a passive viewer of, uh, of a sports event on TV, on a streaming service, how do they begin to engage in a way that functions like a sports bet but doesn't really read like one? I think what we're seeing people do today is the first generation of that simple predictive games, prompts, or what do you think will happen next? Do you agree or disagree with this prediction? That's interesting as a starting point, but I think we're going to see far more complex evolutions, far more complex iterations, again, on the ways to present sports betting to consumers who are coming to a primary product for reasons that have nothing to do with betting on sports and giving them the opportunity to bet on sports in a way that doesn't make them feel like they had to leave or diverge from that that primary product. Yeah, that, that, that's a great way of thinking about it in general. It's like the, the next generation products is uh, not going to follow the pattern that we have seen in the last 10 years. It's a completely new players entering the mix from a different perspective with a different client base who, who are looking for a different way to execute uh, these bets, for example. And um, in the uh, in the crypto world, I, I'm mindful of time here, by the way, so we're going to start rounding off in a little bit. But um, in the crypto world, I think we're already seeing the emergence of, of uh, these type of products. And I think the crypto world in general is a great place to look uh, if you want to see if you want to understand innovation and, and kind of how um, how the development of the future, uh, you know, behavioral 
in, in general is going to take place. But um, what's happening on the on the betting side of things in the uh, in the crypto world is that um, you know in 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 DeFi platforms like PancakeSwap, for example, you can bet whether the crypto is going to go up and down, up or down. You know, and it's really simple. It's really fun, and the crypto world is very playful and fun. So it's kind of like a little bunny and and, and a pancake that's jumping up and down, and you can very quickly and intuitively bet, uh, place a small bet if you if you believe that the crypto is going to go up and down, and it does not feel like the traditional betting experience. And that is what you are saying. They are they are marrying these two uh, worlds, essentially betting and uh, the crypto in general. So yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, Chris, uh, like I said, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, today. We can go on and on and on uh, for a long, long time here. And there's a lot of uh, a lot more points that uh, we didn't have time to cover today. Uh, but uh, hopefully, if I'm if I'm lucky, we'll be able to to uh, to have you back here at some point. Um, I'd love to ask you as well uh, for the listeners that are that are still here. Where can you uh, where can where can you follow Chris Grove? Like uh, where where can you find you if you want to find out more of of yourself? I used to spend a lot more time on on Twitter. And uh, the, the result of that, I think, was uh, less hair and, and a lower life expectancy. But I, I still still spend time there on, on a daily basis, usually to my chagrin. But at OP report, uh, reflection of the fact I, I used to, that handle came from uh, when I found a site called Online Poker Report, which was one of the, the right. first affiliate sites really focused on the, the regulated U.S. market. So Twitter, LinkedIn, I'm... I'm very easy to to get in touch with not not hard to find not hard to track down and plenty of ways that that you can yell at me uh either anonymously <laughs> or or in an attributed fashion whichever you prefer perfect op report on twitter and and other platforms as well brilliant uh, chris it's been an absolute pleasure uh, i wish you a good day ahead you're in the in the us of course for me the the sun is down it's black over here so i'm gonna start heading home from the office and um thank you again and and take care of yourself chris thank you so much for giving your time today. Likewise, thank you for having me.